This is Allie Laventhal, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 115 for December 8th, 2020. Well, today I have the pleasure of bringing you an interview with Ali Laventhal. She's a writer-producer, actually the writing partner of Tanya Bhattacharya, who was on the podcast uh, quite some time ago. And um, you're going to love hearing her story. It's a really interesting story. She actually worked for quite a while in visual effects. She did some movies that you might have heard of, National Treasure, Terminator, Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, so not, not small shows. She worked from 1993 to 2010. But through that time, she, she pursued her uh, passion for writing. And she teamed up with Tanya Bhattacharya. Together, they were on the NBC Writers on the Verge program. And for the last eight years, they've staffed on a whole pile of shows. Um, she's got some great wisdom um, to share, especially because she's she's been responsible for reading the submissions to Writers on the Verge for a few years. And so she's seen a lot of different scripts, a lot of the mistakes that people make. She's got some great tips toward the end of the interview. Um, some housekeeping stuff. This will be the last episode of 2020. It's been quite an amazing year um, in a lot of different ways, but for the podcast, we've been able to release 23, 24 episodes during quarantine, so that's been quite exciting. Please do go back and check out some of the back episodes. Um, some great interviews like Sean Ryan was a, a real highlight, but lots of other ones in that time. And uh, I do want to mention, of course, if you've been watching the podcast and you know that I do have a couple of companies that I, I promote during the, the sponsor break, um, and I want to give some extra discounts to you. If you would like to get your uh, pictures scanned or videotapes imported at avgearguy.com, of course, podcast viewers do get always 10% off if, if you want to um, get those things done. But during the month of December, I'll give you an extra 5% off avgearguy.com. You can check that out. And at drivingfootage.com, um, that's where uh, my wife and I actually shoot driving plates, nine-angle driving plates for television and film compositing. Um, during the month of December, you can get 20% off those shots. Of course, everyone knows that if you want to be a television or feature film writer, at some point you're going to need to buy final draft screenwriting software. Well, all you have to do is go to tinyurl.com slash buyfinaldraft, and a portion of that purchase will go to support the podcast. You can also go to tvwriterpodcast.com slash support and follow the link for Final Draft there. There's also links for audiobooks and print books, and there may be others that come uh, along the way. So make sure you check back to tvwriterpodcast.com slash support, buy a little holiday gift for yourself, and a bit of it will go to support the podcast. You can always send an email to me, mail at tvwriterpodcast.com. And I, I mentioned this a couple podcasts ago, I'm always looking for writers to interview. So if you know any working writers, um, especially the, the mid and higher levels, please do send them my way. Send an email to mail at tvwriterpodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle. Let me know if you know any writers who would like to be on the podcast. We'd love to hear their story. But on to my interview with Ali Leventhal. Enjoy. Well, I'm here with Allie Laventhal, writer, producer, and writing instructor at Script Anatomy. How are you doing, Allie? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. I appreciate you taking this time. I know December is a busy time, um, and you guys are back to work? Uh, we, we actually are uh, 
uh, writing a movie right now. Um, so we're not in a show, we're not in a room, we're not on the show, but we're working. Very cool. Yeah. And and saying we, you're talking about Tanya Bhattacharya, <laughs> which um, viewers of the podcast hopefully will be a, um, uh, know about because uh, she was on the podcast a few years ago. Um, but we'll definitely get to your writing partnership and all those kinds of things. But I'm I'm really really fascinated with how you got started because um, you got started and kept on going in visual <laughs> effects. Um, you you had 37 credits from '93 to 2010. Shows like National Treasure, Terminator, Pirates of the Caribbean, Pirates of the Caribbean, like not small things. Lots more like that. Deja Vu was was one I saw in your IMDb. Tell me about how you got into that and how you got out of that. Sure. Yeah, it was definitely, um, you know, it was no quick overnight uh, either entrance or exit. Um, I actually started college as an English major. That was, I, you know, before even day one of college, I had already declared. I knew that that's what I loved coming out of high school with story and analyzing story and, you know, the write the act of writing, but I had not even a, not even, not even a glimmer of an idea that TV writing was a thing mm -hmm. that I could do as a career. Went to college, liberal arts college, um, Santa Clara university and was an English major. And like slowly dawned on me that first year that I had no idea how I was going to make a living like the day after graduation. So, um, also within that freshman year, some friends were in the communication department and they were, there was a, you could either have a journalism emphasis or a television production emphasis. And they were doing the TV emphasis and the production emphasis. And so they needed people to come in and like, you know, do their mock newscast with them. And I went in and I saw what, you know, we had like an old three camera tube camera studio with an analog switcher and oh yeah. They were like old three-quarter, uh, you know, remote decks were taken out into the field that weighed like 800 pounds. Anyway, so I just realized like, oh, this seems also creative and also somewhat storytelling. And also I could probably like feasibly imagine how I could get a job after graduation. So I switched and did the TV production emphasis and then I... Um, I actually got an internship the summer before my senior year at a local TV station in San Jose and I was a PA, I was a script ripper and I ended up filling in on the graphics on the Chiron for the newscast. It was a, not a network affiliate. It was an independent station. So it was like slightly smaller scale. Um, and I ended up being hired while I was doing my senior year of college. I worked there and I really just loved the graphics. Um, mm -hmm. So that was, but, that, but I, I didn't really love the content. I didn't love the news. I missed sort of fictional, you know, storytelling stuff. And then right at the end of senior year, um, there was an alum, a Santa Clara alum who, who brought a small handful of us who were putting together the department's graduation video. And he brought us up to San Francisco. He were, he happened to be an engineer at the post-production post company up there and brought us up there. Like we had to work, you know, after midnight to 6am when the equipment wasn't being used, but he let, he let us edit our, he basically did it for us because they had just bought Avids. Oh, wow. And it, it was like the first, it was the early nineties. So it was the first nonlinear editing. You know, we didn't even, we had no idea what nonlinear linear editing was. And it was this beautiful company right on the water by the bay down the street from all the big ad agencies like Hal Reine and Y&R. And it was just such an exciting environment that I ended up 
was sort of just like a natural transition. I got a job there in po- at the, um, it was called Real Time Video. Mm-hmm. And I was a uh, PA again. I was a um, receptionist for a short time. I was an assistant editor for a short time and then became an assistant for their compositing systems at that time were Harry and Henry. It was like sort of, anyway, not to get too technical, but mm-hmm. That was kind of, it was almost like I was just following the path that that was laid out in front of me more than anything else. It was just like a practical step-by-step decision-making that I have to say it wasn't too forward-thinking, really. It was like, oh, this is right in front of me, and I like this, so I'm going to do this. Yeah. And then, so I ended up doing visual effects. I became a compositor, worked in San Francisco for, I don't know, maybe five or six years, moved to L.A., and that was an interesting transition because I was mostly doing commercials and music videos in, in the Bay Area. When I came to L.A., I did that a little bit and then um, started working in a place called Asylum, did a little bit at a couple other places. But I started doing features. Hmm. And the I think what happened there was that when you're compositing for commercials, you are sitting with the director, you're making creative decisions together. You know, maybe there's two or three compositors and a few animators or whatever when you're on a movie you're on a team of two or three hundred people maybe that's at one company and another company has 500 shots and another and so what I was doing for those next you know maybe seven or eight ten years was compositing like you mentioned pirates I always use the example of like here are 60 green screen boat shots that you have however many weeks to do. All you have to do is make them look like this one. So you have, you know, 12 <laughs> layers of atmosphere and you got a roto like the, you know, whatever those things are on boats. The, and it was just so monotonous and so mm. not creative. And so, and, and it was becoming more and more technical where when I started, it was like graphics and colors and shapes and a pen and stylist. And by the, you know, 10 years later, it was like practically code writing. Mm. And I, really not, not, um, not, not my gift. It's not my strong suit. So I started to just really suffer from pretty bad burnout. And, um, I, I remember like I took about six weeks off. I kind of planned this thing. I was like, okay, I got to figure out, I'm not going to make it 20 more years doing this. I just know it. I was in like an urgent dire situation. Me, myself and I I was like, I got to figure out something else to do. So I took six weeks off and I, um, I went to massage school for during the day and then I took a screenwriting class at night and I just remember like writing was the thing I loved most. And I was also a theater minor in college and I took a playwriting class the last quarter of college and I wrote a one act and it was just this magnificent experience, even though um, it was horrible. I loved the process and, but it was like, I graduate in six weeks and I got to be practical. So I just forgot about it. So anyway, I did this thing, this like six week experiment. And I was hoping that I would love massage and that I would like, it seemed like a hell of a lot easier thing to transition to. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't cut out for that. And I wrote a feature in that six week class. I hadn't ever even read a script. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah. And so it was terrible also, but the, you know, the thing I wrote, but the fact that he could do that I could even do it was sort of exhilarating. And so it just all kind of happened from there. And then I worked in visual effects for like another five or six years while I was writing script after script after script and continuing to take classes and all of that jazz until I, uh, you know, eventually within that time period, I teamed up with Tanya 
and our, finally we got into Writers on the Verge um, in 2011, 2010, 2010, mm-hmm. and then the, the career started from there. Very cool. Well, let's let's wind back just a little bit. So so yeah, right, that was long. <laughs> um, and and I I gotta say, I spent six weeks rotoscoping leaves of a tree. And decided I'm never rotoscoping again. It's the mo- most monotonous work. Most monotonous. Um, yeah. And it's frustrating too because you do 100 frames and, you know, it doesn't necessarily, if you think you're doing it perfectly and you play it back and it's like jitter. Mm. Anyway, we don't have to talk oh, about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. But but talk about um, when you when you met Tanya and, and what made you want to write together with her. Like, Tell me about yeah. that, that meet cute, so to speak. Yeah, it's interestingly, actually, so she was teaching at Writer's Boot Camp at the time. It was 2005, and I was, that's where I took, I walked in and took class. She didn't teach the first six-week class I took, but then I signed up for their two-year program. She was Mm -hmm. my teacher, and we didn't write together for that two years, but we sort of talked about it, Um, and then she moved to India. I don't know if you remember this from her interview, but she moved to India with her husband, and it was a while. It was, I don't know how long after they moved, we kept in touch and we each actually had a feature option by the same producer at that time. And she could come back to LA. She was in the Fox program. We had lunch. We were talking about this producer that we were both working with. And we just sort of spontaneously thought like, Oh, maybe we should write one of them together. Hmm. We phoned her from the lunch table. She was thrilled about it, excited about it. And so the first thing we wrote together was a feature and she was in the process. She flew back to India, then they moved to the East coast. And so it was like, we actually wrote that first feature mostly over Skype. Um, the process just went really well and we sort of spoke the same language already. We had already like read a lot of each other's work and given each other notes. And, and we were each writing TV specs and pilots at the time trying to break into TV. And so we thought, well, let's, you know, let's write a spec together. And we did, we wrote a nurse Jackie and that's what got us into writers on the verge. Very cool. Very cool. So your, your first TV script together got you in there. Yeah. Very but, cool. But, I mean, we yeah. had written, uh, individually on our own, we had ri- I had written a couple of specs and a pilot, and she had she, I think she had written at least a pilot and a lot of features. So hmm. it wasn't like the first thing we had, you know. We had, yeah. yeah. And 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 um, tell me a little bit about uh, so you kind of kind of cost in a way when you are forming a writing partnership because of the way the industry treats te- treats writing partnerships. How you get half of the income, they treat you as one writer, so to speak. Um, yeah. How much of that was a consideration when you? were um when you first got into writers on the verge and and as you started looking for work together you know it wasn't really i have to say it's like uh, we had such a great creative sort of spark together when we wrote the first two projects and then once we were in writers on the verge we were considered one entity by the program by the fellowship and they helped us get representation and they helped us get us our first job and that we were just sort of already committed just by the fact that we had gotten into that program. So there was never a time where we thought, well, hey, should we, <laughs> you know, yeah. should we be individual entities at that point? It was just a done deal. Hmm. Um, and, you know, and they, they talk about like, well, Sometimes it's an asset. Sometimes it's a liability. If you're trying to staff as a team, do you know? You, hey, it's a good selling point. You get two brains for the price of one, right? Mm-hmm. You think everybody would want that, but occasionally, it. I think we've heard that maybe they don't want the two bodies in the room. They just want one or whatever. You know how they 
staff based on all kinds of different things, but sometimes it's a balance of gender and levels and all that stuff. So I don't know, we're not totally privy to all that information because our reps here, you know, why we did or didn't get a job probably more than we do. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah, it was, there were never really a moment where we thought like, Hmm, we got into this thing and we're doing well. Should we really stick together? We just, we just, you know, it was all working. So. Hmm. Well, talk about that that program itself. Um, so you'd written yeah. one one script together, and here you are in this program. Uh, yeah. What was your experience like? Oh my God, it was amazing. Uh, so within the program at that time, you and I don't know what it's like now, but you write a new spec and a new pilot within I think it's three months. Hmm. So it was pretty accelerated. Um, you know, within the first couple of sessions, you're pitching ideas for your spec. They kind of choose which one of your ideas you should write. You just hit the ground running. We wrote a Mad Men and that was amazing. Uh, we both happened to love that show and we had a good idea for it. Um, so that turned out well. And then same thing with the pilots, you pitch ideas for, you know, what you're thinking about writing for your pilot. They pick which one you should do. And I would say the time frame in which you have to complete those two scripts felt doable for the spec. And it was a little bit more almost, you know, you almost missed out on some of the meaty and crucial development parts of the process for a pilot when you're coming up with brand new world and characters and all that stuff. It felt like very rushed, but we, we finished a script and um, yeah, you do a table read at the end. You, they assigned you a mentor, one of the execs at NBC. Um, we are still in touch with him today. Ours was Russell Rothberg at that time. I think he was like vice president of drama development or something. So, you know, they really help you make connections. Um, and they do a lot of other, they had a couple of evenings of workshop type, um, events where, uh, coaches would come in and, you know, help you figure out how to, take meetings. Like for example, I'm probably doing a terrible job right now, but like the way you're supposed to move your hands, all that stuff. So it was incredibly helpful and loved the people that we did it with. We're still in touch with the other fellows. There were eight of us. I guess there were actually three teams in it that year. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. One of them was a married writing team. Um, and then another male writing team comedy. Anyway. Yeah, it was great. I have nothing but great things to say about it. And then, um, they, you know, sent our material to managers. We got a manager and that manager helped us get an agent and we got our first job. We actually, so you've got, we finished the program, I think it was January or February or so. And then you're rolling into staffing season, which as you know, is the sort of springtime yeah. traditional broadcast staffing. And we did not get staffed and we were brokenhearted. Oh, we had really? But we got Fairly Legal, which was our first job, because it was a USA show. It wasn't on the cycle of the the broadcast network. So I think it was like June or July. So it was just a month or two later after thinking that we had like, you know, missed the boat and failed and had to wait a year. Um, so we got we got really lucky with the, the our first job was like probably I would say in many ways the best job we've ever had. Wow, I love hearing that your very first job was so significant because I do hear a lot of writers talk about how it was, wasn't the first or the second or the third, maybe the fourth or fifth or where they really had a wonderful experience. Talk about Fairly Legal. So 
Fairly Legal was, it was interesting because it was, we came in on season two and the network had sort of cleaned house after season one and Peter Rocco was coming in fresh for season two to revamp the show. He hired us. We were um, together with two other staff writers and then a whole staff of, I think there were a couple of consulting producers and two co-EPs. Anyway, Peter was and is, I guess, we probably one of not only the nicest people you'll ever meet, but also an incredibly talented writer. And he was just very laid back in terms of like, he kept the trains running and never really seemed stressed. I don't know how he did it. Maybe it comes from the fact that he had like 17 kids. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, a lot of kids. Um, And so everything about the job, you know, we had a cast that was pretty fairly drama free, more or less. We had very nice writers in the room. We had a manageable schedule. We had good, you know, we had, it was a fun story to tell. There was, it was a, Sarah Shahi played a mediator and they wanted to sort of do a legal show without it being, uh, taking place in the courtroom too often. Mm-hmm. So that, like that posed a few challenges, but you know, the studio was UCP and the network was USA and they functioned as one unit. So they gave one set of notes, which were oh, really wow. smart, smart and great notes. So you had one round of notes on outlines and script instead of two. I mean, every like aspect of that job was so good. Mm. And Tanya and I were like, because we hadn't ever been assistants. So we hadn't ever been in a writer's room before. We didn't know what to expect. We were terrified the whole time that we were, you know, not talking enough, like whatever all the things are that you stress about. So we spent these eight months on the best job, you know, that we we were ever going to have, like going to have for the next decade, not realizing, you know, we we spent the time like pulling our hair out and beating ourselves up about like, is it going okay? (laughs) And, you know, being worried about all those things. So, um, if, if I could go back, I would relax a little bit, but yeah, it was great. It was great. Very, very cool. And I think that's, that's natural. Even, even people who were an assistant, um, I hear that about when you first get on staff, it's just nerve wracking knowing, do I speak? Yeah. Do I not speak? Um, yeah. Do I pitch? Do I not pitch? Um, so, so from Fairly Legal, you went on to um, eight shows in eight years, I think. Uh, really a, a pretty successful run. Um, tell, tell me about signposts in that time. Client list, perception, night shift, famous in love. Um, what were some, some significant moments in those series? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, um I, it was interesting. We, so we were on season two of fairly legal season two of the client list and fairly legal then got canceled. The client list then got canceled. We were on season three of perception. It then got canceled the night shift. We were on season two and then we were on famous in love season one. So after four shows, we had our first experience with a first season show. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but it was the first time we were on a show with a showrunner and the novelist who had written the book that the show was based on was also in the room and she hadn't done TV before. So that was a little bumpy in the beginning and it was our first time understanding, Oh wow. When you're on season one, those first few episodes, like we had a showrunner, the novelist and Marlene King was an EP and overseeing it. She was actually doing the final season of pretty little liars at the time. So we only had her sporadically, but Marlene had an idea of what the show was, as did the showrunner, as did the novelist, as did the studio, as did the network, and you're still finding it in those first, you know, those first. So I think that was really interesting because it showed us 
um, what that process can be like. And it definitely is, you know, more obviously revisions and, and sort of, it's, it's just the process of finding it. So that was interesting. And then that's the first show we stayed on for, for another season. And we mm. came back. Um, it was a new showrunner at that point. Actually, she came on midway through the first season, Melissa Carter. She took it over in season two, had a great experience. It was also interesting because that show was, um, the cast was young and they were, except for Bella Thorne, they were mostly, um, I guess, unknowns uh, in season one. And then they were sort of a hit. And so coming back in season two, so like watching the cast grow and evolve and and grow into themselves for that second season was really interesting. Love that show. I mean, it was, that show was a great, really great experience, especially that second season. It was like, Oh, now we get to understand how a show kind of finds its groove Mm. and how it arrived here. We were part of it. Um, yeah, it was great. We, we, you know, we shot on the lot here. We shot on the Warner brothers lot. A lot of the, uh, first few shows we were on did not shoot in LA. So, Mm. you know, it was, it was just, it was a great family. Um, it was our first female showrunner as well, so that was significant. And uh, yeah, what else? And and you were also that was the first time you were producer, supervising producer level. Um, how did the your job change as you started be, being at that level? I know in some shows you don't get on set until your producer level. Um, others, it's different. That's true. You know, we were really lucky. We went for a few days to Canada for fair, our fairly legal episode, so we were right away out of the gate on set. Um, and it, but it was really our second show, The Client List. Ed Dector, who's an incredible showrunner as well, really wanted his staff to learn and understand and be a part of and be involved in all of the aspects of production and post as well. So on the client list, we not only covered our own episodes, but covered other people's episodes and were invited to, you know, mixing and all that stuff. Hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's unusual. I think Ed is very special in that regard. Um, and Ed is just such a great mentor type and really truly wonderful in that he wants to, make people feel valued and included and show you things. He's a great teacher. Mm. Um, so we got that experience early on, which was very, very lucky. Then let's see. Perception was interesting. Ken Biller did not like writers on set. So we actually did go to set, but he was sort of unsure that it was necessary. He was very, <laughs> he was very much like it's the script is what it is. You know, if, you, if any of the actors had, problems they would come to him they had to come to him a couple days before so there was no rewriting on set for that show Mm. whereas like client list was interesting because jennifer love hewitt was an ep so we would do her notes then we would do the studio's notes then we would do the network's notes and then of course whatever director whatever but then on the day she would arrive see her sides and realize like hey why don't you do my notes but we had, but then we oftentimes the studio and the network would contradict. And so there would be a lot of like last minute rewriting on that show. So, you know, uh, oh my God, I forgot what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just about being on set. And uh, I mean, yeah. what you described with Ed, that's definitely not typical for a staff writer to be involved in all of those uh, parts of the process. But certainly as you, as you get to the producer, supervising producer level, um, that is a lot more common. Yes, for sure. Which uh, and so uh, a million little things, um, Ginny and George, Georgia, your yeah. newest project. Tell me about 
these last few yeah. years? Uh, so a million little things was also incredible. It was, I would say, I mean, out of all of the shows we've been on for me personally, the actual content was my favorite. I mean, it was very intense. Obviously, I don't know if you've seen it or know what it's about, but, um, in the pilot, there's one attempted suicide and one suicide. So it's this family that loses their father, their patriarch, and it's really a group of male friends that lose lose their friend a la big chill a little bit and it kind of wakes them up in all the ways that they've sort of been living their lives and you know are stuck in their lives and changes that they want to make and how they come together for this family so it was the material was um heavy and intense at times the hours were long and so it was told you know tolling or taxing in that way but it was also a very rewarding to get to work on a story like that and with incredibly talented people um, another interesting thing, speaking of DJ Nash runs that show and he comes from comedy as did Peter Rocco, as did Ed Dector. Like for some weird reason, we had a lot of showrunners that were transitioning from comedy to drama, which is, I say that only because there's so many different ways on shows that a show will handle rewrites. And I think more so in comedy, obviously I'm sure you people watching probably know this already. They're more group group rewriting and sort of gathering the room and doing a pass and doing, you know, joke punch ups and things like that. And DJ really, really, uh, you know, we'd have table reads on that show and then suddenly we, you know, we'd stay and, and rewrites and punch up and all that stuff. And so it was just kind of like, you know, Tanya and I aren't, aren't comedy writers necessarily. And so it was, um, I think that was really an interesting aspect of that show hmm. just because he sort of more so than Ed or Peter, he continued on in that tradition of his process was that, you know, that come from years of what he had done on comedies. Mm-hmm. Very so. interesting. Actually, I'd, I'd be interested just from a practical standpoint. Um, if, I mean, if you think that it really benefited on screen in that show to have those um, rewrites. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, he, he's a very talented, funny guy. And, you know, there were some people that had come from comedy on that staff. And so, yes, I mean, it got funnier and funnier for sure. And, and the network, I think because of the material, because of the subject matter was so heavy, they were asking for some more, you know, lighthearted, uh, fun to be added to the show. And so I think it worked out great. And yeah. Uh, you know, not every rewrite was about joke punch ups. There were mm. storylines that were re engineered and all that stuff too. Yeah, very cool. And so the last couple of shows you've been co executive producers, working yeah. way up the rank. Um we'll talk about Ginny and Georgia and your newest project. Yeah. So Ginny and Georgia is the show for Netflix and it uh we did the interesting thing that stands out to me about that is that we did ten episodes completely well like we wrote nine and a half so almost completely wrote the 10 and then the writer's room was basically released tanya and i stayed on to go to canada to start production so normally you're writing and shooting you know with a significant overlap so there's this Mm -hmm. constant like "Ooh, let's keep up the pace so we have a script for them to shoot next week but that wasn't the case on that show so that was different um and yeah we spent tanya and i went back and forth to canada for four months at the end of 2019 Um, and then with this last project this this last project was a mini room for a show for apple it doesn't have a pickup yet but we did 10 weeks during covid you know actually 
we finished in September. So it was our first experience with a Zoom room. <laughs> and as many writers right now are, you know, experiencing, it's definitely a different thing. Um, but what was so interesting about that was that we, so that show was created by um, two guys who live in Bogota, Colombia, and mm -hmm. Chris Bocato, who lives, I guess, mostly in New York. He was in New York during our during our room, and the two guys were in Colombia, and we were in LA along with a couple other writers. And so Zoom just allowed us to have this, you know, hmm. multi multinational room every day, which was really cool, really cool. And so that project, they did ten weeks. Um, they had obviously bought the pilot and the pitch, or however you say it, and. So we were we wrote episodes two, three, and four, and kind of broke ten, so that they'll I guess they're in the process of figuring it out and deciding if they want to pick it up. But it's really cool. It's about the origin of salsa music in the '60s. The two guys who sort of started it, um, one came from the Dominican Republic, and one was a New Yorker. And yeah, so it's very super interesting and a lot of research. And yeah, we loved it. It was great. Very very cool. Yeah, those mini rooms are a lot more common in Canada. Um, I find it interesting how the streaming networks have, have, um, it seems like they're doing that quite a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. We've heard about it more often, I would say in the last couple of years than certainly than, you know, before that. And I don't, mm -hmm. it's interesting. Like we were sort of wondering like, Oh, is this a trend because of COVID? But I think it did sort of start before the pandemic. I don't know, but it's interesting that you say, um, Canada, you're from, you're Canadian. I think. Yeah. Originally from Toronto. Oh, okay. A city I was very happy to leave because it got very cold. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and it was only November. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Well, let's uh, let's shift gears, and yep. I want to talk about um, even even before your consult your script consulting at, at Script Anatomy, you've for years read NBC Writers on the Verge submissions. Um, you said uh, we were talking beforehand that yeah. uh, pretty much right after you guys left uh, or soon after you, you were reading submissions for writers on the verge. And so yeah. you've, you've now had many years of reading scripts from young writers, new writers. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you've also had the experience of consulting with them and helping them um, get their scripts better. Um, yeah. Tell me about, about that experience. What, what, what kind of scripts do you see? What mistakes do you see people, people making? Um, what are, are easy things to improve that really helps help scripts to shine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I love talking about this. I have to say Tanya's company, Script Anatomy, is how I've been able to do some teaching and consulting, which has really been a total pleasure and just watching it grow over the years. But mm -hmm. And they kind of started around the same time, I think. So coming out of Writers on the Verge, it was a very nice – um, you know, to get to be a reader for them. I haven't done it in the last, I don't know, three or four years, but you know, the years before that I did and, but I'm still teaching for script anatomy. So anyway, yeah, common mistakes. Um, I guess to start simply looking at the scripts from, and writers on the verge get so many submissions. I think, it, you know, some years they're up to like 2,500 and as wow. do all fellowships, I'm sure. Right. And mm -hmm. they, or choosing eight or 10 or whatever it is. So it's like you really sort of have two ways to look at it. And a script really has to be stand out in its concept and also in its execution. So it has to be an idea that 
jumps out at you as something that's unusual and smart. And it also has to have all of that stuff, like great structure and character work and dialogue and scene work and transition, like all of the granular, you know, technical stuff has to be sort of top notch as well. Mm-hmm. It's, you can't have sort of a half-hearted idea or a, you know, non-spectacular idea with a really great writing. It isn't going to get you there. And you can't have an amazing idea with scene work that's sloppy or, you know, dialogue that's stilted or, you know, and then I would also add, and I mean, maybe this is just my opinion, but I think it's pretty universal. I would also add, especially now because these fellowships are really looking at original pilots as well. You know, when we applied in 2010, they were accepting just specs. Mm -hmm. So I would say, especially with pilots, but with specs too, the underlying sort of what is it about? And maybe you want to talk about it in terms of theme. I think that that is sort of a third bucket that script needs to sort of excel on as well. Level, Yeah. So, so um, when people come to you at Script Anatomy, yeah, you, I'm sure you see all types. Um, it, how, I mean, what what are the kind of steps that you go through with with writers? So there, there are various classes at Script Anatomy that are designed in such a way to be to take you through different parts of the process. So, for example, um, the televisionary class goes from an idea through a fully developed outline. You spend five weeks, and each week is a different tool that Tanya developed, that Tanya created. So there are tools about character. There are tools about structure. There are tools about scene work and well, actually not in that class because you're only going to outline. But anyway, and then then there are draft classes which take you from your outline to a first draft of your script. Then there are rewrite labs. I actually just finished one this past weekend teaching a rewrite lab, which you start with a script and you go through you go through five weeks of rewriting. So, and in that class, each week again is sort of a different lecture and a different tool, and you're getting feedback each week from not only an instructor but also the, your peers, the other writers in the class. Mm-hmm. And that that class ends with table reads. So, and then she's added things like. Uh, pilot lab and structure lab and there are pitch classes. So it's really sort of broken out into different specialties, um, the various classes. Mm. And so, so uh, is yeah. it, is, uh, is it primarily the classes? Is it also, um, is the actual direct script consulting a big part of it, small part of it? It's both. You can, it really depends on what you want to do as a writer. If you want to take a class or if you want to work one-on-one with somebody and do a consult, um, both of those options are available. If you're doing a consult again, there are sort of, you know, you can do a consult on your outline. You can do a consult on outline and script. You can do a consult on just your script. You can do a consult on a draft and a rewrite. There are all kinds of different options. Really. You can probably design it any way you want, whatever works for you. Um, and you can, you know, she's got, I'm, I want to say like 40 or so teachers teaching for her now, and they're all working writers. And I think that's what makes it really stand out. Um, Not only the working writers, our our teachers are working writers aspect, but the success stories have been pretty spectacular too. So I got to say there's, there's a ton of film schools out there that don't have that kind of track record. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I probably sound biased, but it's actually my unbiased opinion like watching it grow and watching her build it and watching the way it's evolved it's, it's i just like <laughs> i bow down yeah. 
but I yeah. love being a part of it. I really do. I have to say it's like you do fall in love with the, the writers that come through and like nobody's cheering harder for them than I am when they get staffed or get into a fellowship or get repped or whatever it is. Mm. So yeah, it's really fun to watch them, watch them evolve. Mm. What, what advice do you find you're most commonly giving? In terms of the actual writing, that's such a good question. I mean, one thing we talk about a lot, and I would say when you're a newer writer, it's harder to, maybe not for everybody, but to have a main character who is actively pursuing a goal. We always talk about like, how do you keep the story moving forward, right? Like this scene doesn't move the story forward, but what does that mean? It's hard to sometimes put that into words or to explain that. Like, how come this script feels like it has momentum and I just want to keep turning pages and this script is like, oh, I can, you know, I, I've read this page three times and I, and it really is about having a main character who wants something so badly that they are actively going about trying to get it. Mm. And you'd be surprised how many people think like this characters sitting at a kitchen table chatting with his roommate and the dialogue's amazing and it's fun and it's funny and it's like has some good things to say about life but I don't know where the story's going I don't know what they like the lack of sort of drive and propulsion for a main character is something I see a lot and you know definitely some some one of the basics that we sort of harp harp on uh well, writers to sort of make sure they are they're hitting Hmm. And and on the other side, um, when you when you read a script and are surprised by how good it is, mm -hmm. um, which I'm sure happens, probably not that often. Um, it does. <laughs> it, yeah. it uh, uh, but but tell me, like, what are the kind of things that that when you see them, you think uh, they're on the right track? Yeah, I mean, I I rarely have anybody that comes through that I think, oh, they're not on the right track. Like, I feel like everybody, almost everybody, maybe everybody makes significant progress and improvement. And it feels like if they can make, you know, this 10 or 20 or 50% improvement in these six weeks that I'm with them, I know that they can, you know, there's a chance that they're going to go all the way. Um, but yeah, if, I mean, there's so many different aspects of it, right? It's like some people just have a very natural gift for character development and they can, you know, it's, we were talking about it the other day in class and talking about how you want to, you don't want to just, we, we, when we are developing a character or teaching character development, we talk about things like a character having a flaw, character having redeemable traits to balance out that flaw. What is their stage of life? You know, what, what is their goal? Like we just said, you know, what is their backstory? What is the core wound that has caused their flaw to manifest? And how does that manifest in behavior that we're going to see? Like all these things, mm. who are they? What do they want? What world are, are they in? Who are their dynamic relationships with? What are their arcs? What the, you know, all this stuff, but you can have all that stuff and they still sometimes feel like a flat two dimensional, not real human being, even mm. if they're, even if they have great dialogue, but some people just have this gift for creating characters that feel like real humans. Um, and we were talking about it in class the other day, how you, you want to remember that 
your script is going to land at, you know, forget a rep and forget selling the things, the studio and a network and all that. Think all the way down the line till it lands on the desk of an actor. And there, say you have like a fantastic, you know, uh, in-demand actor reading it and they have 50 other scripts on their desk. Like, what is it about your character that is going to make them go, oh my God, I have to play this role. Mm. And so I think... Some people just have a knack for that. You read their characters and they just sound really interesting and unique and fascinating and real. And yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah. Very cool. Some people write a theme. Yeah, I could go on and on. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, my wife and I have been recently watching 24. And, and aside from the ticking clock, one of the things yeah. that's really most impressed me about that series is how you can tell right from the beginning of every season how they've built the characters in such a way that they have natural conflict with yeah. each other. Um, what would you say about how you, how you build your characters in such a way that they will have conflict, conflict with the other characters in the story? Well, again, I would come back to goal. Somebody who wants something, conflict doesn't have to mean fighting. Conflict mm -hmm. doesn't have to mean, you know, yelling and screaming and, you know, but if the character has a goal and they're out there pursuing it, who's the character that gets in the way of that goal? Not necessarily because they want to stop that person from getting what they want, but maybe they want a different thing and their goal is at odds with. And so if you really, if you really focus even your structure through the lens of what your character's goal is, you'll just automatically have conflict. You'll, you know, you'll, because within the structure, we teach the obstacles that you have to hit, where you have to hit them. And when you come up against the obstacle to that goal, and maybe that's a person, maybe it's whatever, you know, a plot turn, there just inherently is conflict. Hmm. Yeah. Very, very cool. Um, and, and tell me about some of Script Anatomy's success stories. I mean, you mentioned a little bit about people getting staffed, getting getting um, yeah. representation. So I think if you check out the website, it's scriptanatomy.com. Um, we have an alumni page, and it's all listed on there, all the different shows that people have gone on to write for and where they've been repped and that kind of thing. I think I did look today because there's like a little ticker, and I think since 2014, it's 75 people have gotten to fellowships wow yeah it's amazing right because as we said like just writers on the verge alone if they're getting 2500 submissions and they're choosing eight i think we had three in that program last year i could be wrong about that mm. but it's astounding really i have to say and um it was 75 people in fellowships and 65 have been staffed wow yeah. wow 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 not to mention all the writers that are placing in other contests and getting managers and agents and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. You know what? I'm, I'm going to throw out a question. Um, yeah. Film school is brutally expensive. Um, Ed, my, my daughter is uh, applying for colleges and depending where she gets in, it could be 70,000 a year. Um, and, you could buy a house almost with, with the amount that it costs. Yeah. It, it strikes me that somebody could go through the programs that you've described and, and know from, from start to finish how to, how to write a script. Uh, I mean, do you think it's worth it to go to film school? Do you think that, that somebody can, can go through script anatomy and, and get some script consulting and come out ahead financially and ahead in terms of knowledge? 
I mean, I do, I've never been through film school, so I don't know. I would imagine there's a lot of, of the production side that you learn there that obviously we're not focused on. Um, so I, I think it really depends. But if you're solely sure that you want to be a writer and, you, you know, that you're not interested in directing or production design or whatever all the other things are, there's so many other, then I would say absolutely yes. But again, I feel like that is, you know, again, I haven't been to film school, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's definitely a cost difference. I think yeah. I don't know what prices are, but they're not seventy thousand dollars. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um. So so um. Just starting to wrap it up here. Um. You've had a uh, a very interesting career up to now. Um. What do you wish you had known when you started that you know now? This is such a great question. I mean, there there are probably a lot of answers. Oh, my dog's gonna knock the computer over. Um, a lot of ways to answer this question. I think probably in terms of staffing as a TV writer, one of the most important things to know that I that didn't know um, back then is that every job is so different. It's really true. And Tanya and I, you know, we've had this path where we've been on a lot of different shows for a season or two seasons. Instead of some people, they get their first job and they stay on that show for eight years and they know one way of doing things, right? Mm. And we've been able to see, you know, how eight or nine different showrunners run their shows and they're so different. Their expectations are different. The way they treat their writers are different. The way they rewrite is different. The way they break story is different. The way they want you to go to set or not go to set. Like there's so many different aspects of it and everybody's a little different. And so it's almost like you can't walk into the next job assuming they want you to do what they wanted you to do on the last job. You kind of have to feel it out each time and, um, you know, read the room and all of those things that, you know, that writers and all the, all the advice, but it's like, you almost have to relearn it a little bit each time mm-hmm. and realize that, yeah, it's going to be different. Yeah. So we've, we've talked about a lot of the positive parts of um, your career. I know that there's some negative parts. <laughs> there's, there's some times that are, that are harder. What, what do you think helps you get through those harder times? Oh my gosh. Um, well, one thing, I mean, there's, okay, I'll name a couple of things. One is that for many years, like I would say the first five years or so, Tanya and I carpooled almost every day to work. And so we would have like these vent sessions, you know, you get to like drive home with somebody who's just been through it with you. And so you can sort of bitch about it and get it all out, which was really nice. Like I, I imagine sometimes being an individual writer and not, and, you know, coming home to either an empty house or to somebody who has no idea what goes on in a writer's room, it would be hard to, so that has been great Mm. for me, things like, uh, exercise and having a dog and having to walk every day, like that stuff is nice, clear the mind. Um, but really like the bottom line is when you strip away the, the cutthroatness and the people throwing each other under the bus and the stress and the like deadlines and the disappointments and all of that stuff. Like the bottom line is this thing that we get to do, we get to make up stories and write them and shoot them and put them on television. Like it's really fun. And so I guess if you can just remind yourself of that and how lucky we are to do that, then yeah, it helps the rest of it not seem so bad. Very cool. Well, that is a great place to end up. Um, any final thoughts? Anything that you think we missed here? 
I'm good if you're good. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and and so you're A Leventhal on Twitter? Yep. yep, A Leventhal on Twitter and Instagram. And I've recently deleted Facebook, <laughs> which, you know, we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> uh-huh. Very cool. And, of course, make sure um, check out scriptanatomy.com. Um, yeah, lots of great courses there. I know uh, Spiro Skenso has talked about that as well. Yeah. He's one of the yeah. uh, teachers there. And yeah. uh, I, I personally, I, I think these programs, whether or not you go to film school, are of tremendous value. My daughter was in um, the On the Page program earlier this year, and in oh, two wow. weeks she wrote a TV pilot. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Like, That's yeah. amazing. There's, yeah. there's, there's something about going through it with a group of people and, and being very specific on the different parts of the process that um, yeah. I think are of tremendous value. So scriptanatomy.com, yeah. A11thall on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure you follow. And uh, uh, do you answer questions on Twitter? I, I want to be sensitive to that. You know, I'm happy to do it. I don't really, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of like a very intermittent Twitter user and mm-hmm. not really, you know, and of course, if, you know, except for the election when I feel like I was on there 24 hours a day, but uh-huh. I'm totally happy to, if I see them, I'll definitely answer them. I don't, I don't see them that often. <laughs> so uh, yeah, go cool. for it. <laughs> cool. Well, do give her a follow and Allie, thank Thanks so much for oh, taking gosh. the time. Um, you've been very generous and I appreciate all your wisdom and sharing it with the viewers here. Total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Thanks. All right. And that was my interview with Allie Laventhal. Well, like I said, this is the last episode of the year, so have a great holiday, and I look forward to seeing you. Probably uh, I'm going to try to do an episode every two or three weeks in 2021, Um, so do watch for my Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle, to find out when the next podcast will be coming to you. Make sure to subscribe on all of the places you can find this podcast. Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, the tvwriterpodcast.com site, or also at scriptmag.com, and now also on Pandora. And if you're on Instagram, please follow at tvwriterpodcast. Please do follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do it for as little as 25 cents per episode. You can find out how you can become a patron of the podcast or a sponsor of the podcast at tvwriterpodcast.com support. Have a great holiday. Bye-bye.